Diagwit, Ismisha Ryan on Shaw. The story for this episode was requested by Galway man living in Clare, Sean O'Byrne. Gurav Mahagut Sean, an Ishvashagadi on scale. Tarishtak. Life is a funny thing. We all begin it with different rules, different obstacles, and different opportunities. But as we age, it's the decisions we make based on these which determine what we do. Who we are gets decided before we arrive on the planet and gets moulded along the way. It is up to us individually what we do with all of this. I myself am still trying to figure it all out. I assume you are too. Nobody really knows what we are doing in life. We are trundling along, hitting milestones where we can and if you are lucky you might just be okay. And that's what we all want really, just to be okay. Well, one man didn't want just that. He was willing to sacrifice that so that today I have the opportunity to have choice, to have freedom, to have the ability to seek inner peace. This is his story. In 1823, in the Viking city of Waterford, in what is now the Granville Hotel, a child was born. His name was Thomas Francis Maher. Thomas came from a family of adventurers. His father, also named Thomas, was born in St. John's, Newfoundland, but returned to his own father's homeland of Waterford in order to look after his father's family business. Here he went on to become the mayor of Waterford, the first Catholic mayor of the city since the dreadful penal laws. He was elected as the famine began as a member of parliament for Waterford City. He held this role acting for the interest of the Irish under the British Crown until 1857. Thomas's grandfather, also named Thomas, left his home for Newfoundland where Thomas's father was born. He worked as a farmer, merchant and a tailor, but found his niche in Newfoundland. Here he shipped cod back from his new home in Canada to his spiritual home in Waterford. He did this most successfully. 
In the autumn of 1809, he shipped more than 1,350 quintals of cod and other unique products back to Waterford. At the time, Newfoundland was a British colony and the Irish were the majority population. Thomas Francis, the Thomas of this tale, was the third in this line of successful, hard-working and adventurous men. He was one of five siblings born to his parents. His mother too was a person of note. Her name was Alicia and she was the second eldest daughter of Thomas Quan and Alicia Forrestal. Her father was a successful trader and he was a partner in a large business in Waterford. Alicia was a kind and caring mother, but her time was cut short with her children as at the age of three and a half, Thomas was told that his mother had passed away giving birth to twins. Only one of the twin girls survived this ordeal. Such were the conditions in Ireland at the time for the Irish, only Thomas and his older sister Christine managed to live past childhood. As he was from a hard-working, single-parent family now, Thomas was sent to a Catholic boarding school for his education. He was a very bright and capable boy. When he turned 11, he earned a place in the Jesuit school of Clongoes, County Kildare. Here he showed two very natural abilities. He had a real talent for public speaking when ears would listen and debating when they would not. At the age of 15, he became the youngest earner of a medal in the debating society. His tongue would cut you like a sword and he made no apologies for that. It would have taken a brave man or woman to have faced Thomas in a verbal duel. The great Daniel O'Connell once witnessed Thomas's speaking ability whilst visiting the college and wrote of the experience. A genius that could produce such a work is not destined to remain long in obscurity. Thomas's mind broadened through his education. He learned how to structure a sentence in the correct manner for the upper classes. He learned how science dictates the movements and experiences of all things on earth. He learned of God and its powers. He learned maths and languages. He learned history, but not of his own history. Throughout his schooling, the story of Ireland was hidden from Thomas's mind. 
This was common throughout Ireland as the British Empire used education to disguise its murders as glorious victories. It locked the story of Ireland away from the Irish. But Thomas was one of the fortunate ones, for his father and grandfather ensured that their descendants knew of Ireland. At home, Thomas was taught about revolution, Celtic warriors, ancient battles and glorious victories. He was taught of the wolves which once roamed, the gods who once ruled and the land which once breathed. He was also taught about oppression, slaughter and horror under the watchful eye of the crown. It was because of this knowledge of Ireland's past that when Thomas was offered a place in Trinity College Dublin, both he and his father agreed he would turn it down, as they saw Trinity as both anti-Irish and anti-Catholic. The once Monastery of Trinity, until 1793, had banned any Catholics from attending their school of snobbery. After this point, those who were not Anglican were not allowed to be scholars, professors or gain any real title from the college. This rule lasted for a further 80 years. In 1871, such was the college's attitude towards the native Irish that the church prevented Catholics from attending the college without consent from their bishop. This rule lasted until 1970. Instead of joining the School of Irish Oppression and where slave owner George Berkeley spent his earnings, Thomas and his father decided that the Jesuit College of Stonyhurst in Lancashire, England was a better suit for Thomas. In Stonyhurst, the professors were amazed by Thomas's ability to speak and to convey radical ideas. They did, however, have one major issue with him. Thomas spoke with a very deep and very clear Waterford accent, which he refused to dilute in his everyday life. He did agree, though, to alternating to an upper-class Irish accent when publicly speaking, so that he could be better understood by those who were deaf to difference. After a few successful years in the college, Thomas returned home to begin life as a man. He toyed with the idea of joining the Austrian army, as was common for an Irishman of his age and heritage. He decided eventually against this, however, and instead went to Dublin to train as a barrister. Whilst doing so, Thomas became involved in the Repeal Association and their work to repeal the Act of Union between Britain and Ireland. This was essentially a bill to join Ireland and Britain under the One Kingdom. Understanding his people, his history and who he was, Thomas was totally against any union between Ireland and the sword which pressed on the neck of the harp. 
At this time, due to the rules of oppression inflicted on Ireland, a movement was building in the people of Ireland. This movement was not one which was influenced by greed, wealth or what others might refer to as glory. This was a spiritual movement. This was a movement which began in the heart and festered through the body, eventually consuming the fists and mouths of the Irish who had had enough of foreign oppression on the land and the people they loved. At the forefront of this movement were three brave Irishmen, two Catholics and a Protestant. Thomas Davis, John Blake Dillon and Charles Gavin Duffy stood together as Irishmen and began publishing a newspaper called The Nation. They began sharing the hidden story of the Irish with the Irish people. The three men were members of Daniel O'Connell's Repeal Association, the group who would become known as Young Ireland. Thomas was an avid reader of the paper and it pushed him further towards the idea of Ireland's freedom. In December 1844, Thomas Sr. and Jr. attended a repeal meeting in their home city of Waterford. Thomas Sr. presided over the event and Thomas the Jr. was the meeting's secretary. It was at this meeting where Ireland first heard Thomas speak with passion about his views of Ireland. He spoke of our history, our land and our spirit. He spoke of our oppressors and their rule of greed, theft and slaughter. The crowd stood amazed. After the event, word spread throughout Waterford of Thomas's words. It was soon announced that he would be speaking at a city meeting and the entire county turned up to hear the words of the risen Irishman. As the Irish began to rise, so too did the English ruling classes disdain against them. As Thomas's message swept across Ireland, so too did the blight of the potato crop. The famine had begun the great genocide of the Catholic Irish. With it, the Irish were forced into acts we cannot comprehend today. The shins of dead children were eaten for nourishment. Family and friends were locked in homes to ensure the starving animals did not feast on them once they had perished. Bags were packed and homes were left forever. Roofs were set on fire when rents could not be paid by starving tenants. Starving and frozen, we roamed our own land in the hope of the relief of a meal or death.
as we did, Queen Victoria grew fatter and fatter. And in spite of the relative peace between our lands which has come to be since these atrocities, I do hope she died roaring. I hope that the last visions she had were the Irish awaiting her arrival, pitchfork and torch in hand. Thomas travelled the island to investigate what was happening to his people. He quickly learned of food being exported from the island to feed the empire and its leaders. Outraged and heartbroken, Thomas rushed to France in the hope of finding aid. In France, Thomas sought help and also to learn of the revolution. It was here that Thomas met with a group of French women who had heard of the struggle of the Irish. They presented Thomas with a cloth. Thomas unravelled the cloth to discover it was in fact a flag. On one side a stripe of green, the green to represent the Catholic Irish. On the other side a stripe of orange, the orange to represent the Protestant Irish. In the middle a stripe of white, the white to represent the lasting truce and heroic brotherhood between these two communities. Thomas returned to Ireland with this flag in hand. On the 1st of March 1848, during the Waterford by-elections, Thomas proudly rose this flag into the air outside the Wolf Tone Confederate Club. Here, for the first time, the flag of Ireland, which we recognise today, flew for all the people of our land. It flew for those whose ancestors stretched back to the first men of our land. It flew for those whose ancestors arrived here and created their homes. It flew for those who were born here to parents of other nations. It flew for those who left home in search of better lives. It flew for those far away from home whose souls belong in our valleys and rivers. It flew for all the children of Ireland. Under the idea of this flag, Thomas and the other young Irelanders organised a revolution for the people of Ireland. They mustered up the force to fight back, but as the famine raged on, the Irish were too weak and weary to fight. The rising didn't last very long. 
it effectively just became a gunfight in a police station in Tipperary. Such was the failure of the rebellion to ever take off that this revolution gained three names. The Young Irelander Rebellion of 1848 The Battle of Ballangarry and the battle for Widow McCormack's Cabbage Patch. Thomas and the other leaders were arrested and sentenced to be hung, drawn and quartered. It was after he was informed that he would die for Ireland's freedom that Thomas once again spoke publicly for Ireland as part of his final remarks in the courtroom. I bring to you now a shortened version of these words. My lords, it is my intention to say a few words only. Did I fear that hereafter, when I shall be no more, the country I tried to serve would speak ill of me, I might indeed avail myself of this solemn moment to vindicate my sentiments and my conduct. But I have no such fear. The country will judge of those sentiments and that conduct in a light far different from that in which the jury by whom I have been convicted have viewed them, and by the country the sentence which you, my lords, are about to pronounce will be remembered only as the severe and solemn attestation of my rectitude and truth. Whatever be the language in which that sentence be spoken, I know that my fate will meet with sympathy and that my memory will be honoured. I ascribe no main importance, nor do I claim for those efforts any high reward. When the passions and the prejudices of this hour have passed away to appeal your own conscience and ask of it, was your charge what it ought to have been, impartial and indifferent between the subject and the crown? I am here to regret nothing I have ever done, to retract nothing I have ever said. With these sentiments, I await the sentence of the court. I have done what I felt to be my duty. I have spoken now, as I did on every other occasion during my short life, what I felt to be the truth. I now bid farewell to the country of my birth, of my passions, of my death. A country whose misfortunes have invoked my sympathies, whose factions I sought to quell, whose intelligence I prompted to a lofty aim, whose freedom has been my fatal dream. To that country I now offer, as a pledge of the love I bore her, and of the sincerity with which I thought and spoke, and struggled for her freedom, the life of a young heart. And with that life, the hopes, the honours, the endearments of a happy, a prosperous and honourable home. Thomas was sent to Richmond Jail to be executed. As he awaited his death, pressure mounted on the British establishment to be lenient towards him and the others. 
the powers in France and the Church stood with Thomas and pressed the crown for mercy. Eventually, a form of mercy was granted. Instead of death, Thomas and the others were banished from Ireland. They were sent to spend the rest of their natural lives in penile exile in Van Diemen's land. What we know today as Tasmania, Australia. Part of the deal was that Thomas could live with some freedoms so long as he did not attempt to leave the island and should he have to leave at any point he would register his absence with the local authorities. He understood this meant he was never to return to Ireland. Thomas first settled in Campbelltown and then to Ross where his house still stands today. He was banned from meeting any of the other rebels sent to the other side of the world. But there are only so many rules you can expect a rebel to follow. Whilst in Van Diemen's land, Thomas married Catherine Bennett, the daughter of a farmer who had been sent to the land for theft many years before. After serving three years in penal servitude, Thomas sent a letter to the authorities in Van Diemen's land. He informed them that he was to leave the land and that once he was free for more than 24 hours, he would consider himself a free man and good luck to them trying to stop him. Thomas and the other banished rebels then all marched to the northeast of Australia. Catherine stayed behind as at this point she was pregnant but the plan was already in place that she would have to wait. As a side note, a son was born but died four months later. When Thomas and the others reached the northeast, they climbed into a rowing boat and the exiled rebels of Ireland set off, blindly rowing into the wild ocean. A chance at freedom was worth the risk of death. The waves punished them for their risk, thrashing them across the sea. The monsters of the ocean came to investigate. The skies punished their lack of cover and their Irish skin blistered and burst under its pressure. Catherine, after the death of their son, travelled safely to London and then to Waterford. It was here she first understood Thomas's role in their home country. When she arrived in Waterford Railway Station, thousands of Irish people cheered her arrival. While Thomas was out at sea, being punished, a whaling ship spotted the raft floating aimlessly in the ocean. 
they were picked up and they explained who they were. With other Irish on board the ship, there was no issue as to their cause. The ship took them to San Francisco. From here, Thomas travelled to Central America. While there, he hunted jaguars and wrote articles about his travels for Harper's Magazine. Thomas returned to San Francisco and spent a few months here with the others as they planned a further rebellion supported by the Irish in America. Seeking bigger support, he travelled to New York to visit the growing Irish communities. While he spent his time here, he began to enjoy the freedoms America offered. He became a lawyer, founded newspapers for the Irish community and was a very popular public speaker on all topics relating to Ireland. He shared the stories his father and grandfather had told him. Catherine joined him here for a time after she settled in Waterford. She explored America with Thomas, but returned to Waterford where they were determined to create a life together once Thomas could find a way home. When Catherine returned, she discovered she had become pregnant. The pregnancy took an awful toll on her body, however, and she became very ill. On one occasion, word spread that she may be close to death. This caused a crowd of nearly 20,000 people to gather outside the home she was creating and the people kneeled to pray for her survival or peaceful passage to the other side. Catherine gave birth but passed away soon after. Their son was named Thomas after his father. Thomas, left broken-hearted for his dead wife and infant son, still had no way home. Family in Waterford raised his son in his absence. After some time, he met a woman called Elizabeth Townsend. Elizabeth was the daughter of a wealthy Protestant family were against the idea of their daughter marrying a Catholic more than the idea of her marrying a convict. Elizabeth converted to Catholicism and married Thomas. Now settled in New York and working as a lecturer, Thomas was granted American citizenship. As others heard him speak, he gained more power and favour in America. In order to secure his citizenship, he managed to get a judge to trial him in America for what he had done in Ireland and was found to be guiltless of crime. 
Thomas then began to gather funds and influential people and planned to create an Irish colony in Costa Rica. The idea was that this would be a safe haven for the Irish and although they would be giving up their homeland, they would be free of the British in a new free Ireland. These plans were stopped however as the American Civil War broke out and the people of influence had their attention focused elsewhere. Due to his own influence and history, Thomas was commissioned as a captain of the New York State Militia in the Union Army. He fought in the First Battle of Bull Run, a horrible bloody occasion where the war ended for 6,000 men. Thomas's influence in the army was clear and the superiors took note of how he handled himself in both battles and managing his men. He was informed he was to organise the Irish Brigade, a group of Irish men. They had the war cry, Falk a Balach, meaning clear the way, such was their bravery in rushing to the front lines of battle. Thomas was very proud of the Irish men he led into battle, and he even began recruiting soldiers in the hope they would gain the experience of battle and be able to return home and fight for everlasting freedom. One of his ads in the New York Daily Tribune read, 100 young Irishmen, healthy, intelligent and active, wanted at once to form a company under command of Thomas Francis Maher. By 1862, Thomas was promoted to Brigadier General. At the Battle of Fair Oaks in May 1862, Thomas first led the brigade into battle. The Union Army won a defensive victory and the Irish Brigade furthered their reputation as fierce fighters. This reputation further grew and the legend of the fighting Irish was born as images of Thomas and his men riding into battle began to be created and published across the Union States. Following the Battle of Fair Oaks, Thomas was given command of a non-Irish regiment. This experiment was unsuccessful and Thomas forced the point that he would command Irishmen only. Thomas's Irishmen fought at the Battle of Gaines Mill. The Irish Brigade arrived in battle after rushing through the Chickahominy River as reinforcements. When they arrived at the battle, they fought gloriously, freeing those who had been pinned down by the enemy. Thomas and the Irishmen showed no fear as they ran headfirst into battle, shouting in their native tongue. The acts of Thomas and his brave Irishmen that day are today considered to be the highlight of Thomas's military career. The war was going well for Thomas and his men 
until the Battle of Chancellorsville. His troops perished in the battle which saw 30,000 men killed or wounded. There was an estimated 4,000 Irish men lost to that battle, never to breathe the air of home again. Thomas himself fell off his horse, badly wounding his leg. Furious with himself for leading his fellow Irishmen to their death, Thomas resigned his position. A few months later, he was returned to a commanding position as the availability of leading officers became scarce due to the body count growing higher and higher. He was instructed to command the military district of Adowa. When the war finally came to an end, Thomas was appointed the secretary of the new territory of Montana. He worked hard to bridge the differences between both sides of the war as they tried to manage the fallout. With the absence of a governor, Thomas took on the responsibility. There were issues in Thomas's time here. Rivals for his role attempted to sully his name. Those who he had fought against in the war did not respect his position and the Native Americans were rising against the settlers to retrieve their stolen lands. In the summer of 1867, Thomas, aged 44, was travelling by steamboat down the Missouri River. He had been to Fort Benton to collect guns in order to fight against the rising Native American forces should they be required. On the boat there was a mixture of Confederate and Union soldiers, previous enemies. In the hills around them the watchful eye of the Native Americans. At some point during the journey, Thomas left the boat, but not through his own accord. His death was recorded as instant death, water 12 feet deep and rushing at a rate of 10 miles an hour. Nobody saw how his body entered the water. Thomas's body was never found. Today, Thomas is remembered in a number of places. In 1905, a statue of Thomas on horseback with sword raised was placed on the front line of the Montana State Capitol in Helena. A similar statue was placed outside his home in Waterford in 2004. 
1963, American President and Irishman John Fitzgerald Kennedy spoke of Thomas's legacy, leading the Irish Brigade into battle in the American Civil War. He also presented the battle flag of the Brigade to the people of Ireland, and it hangs to this day in Leinster House, the location of the Irish Parliament. In 1982, the Ancient Order of Hibernians formed the Thomas Francis Maher Division 1 in Helena, Montana, dedicated to the principles of the Order and to restoring a historically accurate record of Thomas's contributions to Montana. The military fort at Camden near Crosshaven, County Cork was renamed Fort Maher. Maher County in Montana was named after Thomas. A monument at the Antietam battlefield was dedicated in his honour. A cenotaph memorial to Thomas is located in Greenwood Cemetery, Brooklyn, New York. In March 2015, the Shore Bridge crossing the River Shore outside Thomas's home of Waterford was renamed the Thomas Francis Maher Bridge by the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. A memorial featuring a bust of Thomas was dedicated in 2009 on the bank of the Missouri River in Fort Benton, Montana, believed to be near the site of the riverboat where he was said to have entered the river. The Missoula Montana Hurling Club was named after Thomas. For me, Thomas will always be remembered by the flag that he raised for us all. The music for this episode was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help to support this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan is Anandum, Gurav Mahagut, Slonanish.